so they've always forced indigenous people to assimilate and become a part of the quote-unquote American dream, that whole kill the Indian, save the man concept. It's still very real and it's still deeply embedded in our communities. And so that's why I'm so deeply passionate about it, because knowing the history that we've never had a choice to begin with is why I'm so unapologetic about we should have that choice, you know? My name is Allison Case. I'm a family doctor and an abortion provider, and over the next few months I'll be traveling across the country talking with abortion providers and advocates about restrictions in their states and what they think will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the upcoming Supreme Court session. I hope this podcast will serve as a jumping off point for new advocates who want to get involved with the fight for reproductive justice, including abortion access. Access to abortion is a fundamental human right. Thanks for joining me as we learn more about how we can preserve this right together. Hi, everyone. This is Allison coming to you from The Scamp. I'm bringing you a special episode today that's a little different from the others that I've done so far. All of my episodes so far have been based on a state, so a specific state that I've been to. I've talked with providers and advocates about the restrictions in that state. But I want to take some time today to look specifically at the challenges facing indigenous peoples who are seeking abortion across the country. Many of the states that I've been to have a significant population of indigenous people. I wanted to find out more about the specific barriers that indigenous people face when it comes to accessing reproductive health care. I reached out to an amazing group called Indigenous Women Rising and was able to sit down and talk with them about the specific concerns of indigenous groups across the country. And in fact, that first voice you heard was Nicole Martin, who's one of the founders of Indigenous Women Rising, and she was describing why she's involved in this work. This is a fantastic group. Per their website, they are an organization committed to honoring Native and Indigenous people's inherent right to equitable and culturally safe health options through accessible health education, resources, and advocacy. As I mentioned before, I was lucky to speak with three of the founders on my call, Rachel Lorenzo, Nicole Martin, and Executive Director Dr. Melissa Riley. So this started as kind of a sole venture in 2013 after the ballot measure in 2013 to ban abortion at 20 weeks here in Albuquerque. In that campaign, which was brilliantly run and is definitely one of the best campaigns that I've ever worked on. However, I didn't see myself reflected at all in that campaign. I was the only Indigenous person who worked on the campaign. And usually when you're in spaces like that, it can feel isolating. And a lot of the questions I had may not have been taken into consideration from the development stage of the campaign. Why aren't we talking to, you know, the American Indian Student Services Center about what's happening? Are we talking to folks at Indian Health Services? And that's reflective of feminism in general and any kind of social justice movement that is rooted in, you know, that whole row perspective. We don't just want abortion on demand without apology, but we also want to make sure that the care that we're getting is culturally sensitive and culturally relevant. That was Rachel Lorenzo, one of the co-founders of Indigenous Women Rising, talking about the founding of the organization. I think it's really powerful for non-Native individuals to understand that the concerns and the perspectives of Indigenous peoples have not traditionally been included in feminist movements. We'll talk about this a little bit more later in the episode, but it's really important for non-Native folks to lift up the voices of the people leading these groups to make sure that those voices are heard and those concerns are heard as we move forward as a movement. 
In keeping with their commitment to reproductive justice, Indigenous Women Rising has a number of campaigns. That includes campaigns around breastfeeding access, an abortion fund for Native peoples in North America, so including the United States and Canada. They also do work on sex education in Native communities. Nicole Martin, as I mentioned before, is one of the founders of Indigenous Women Rising, and she works specifically on the sex education arm along with Executive Director Dr. Melissa Riley. I work on the sex education development with Indigenous Women Rising. What that entails is just me and Dr. Riley. We have put together 10 lesson plans on different ways of like how do we address gender and sexuality in our communities and how has colonization, you know, mainstream sex education kind of lack for us, considering that our identities are like multifaceted and we can't just stigmatize gender and sexuality in the way that we have as communities, both on the reservation and off the reservation. The other project that I learned a little more about was the group's work on breastfeeding and traditional regalia. And Rachel explained that a little more clearly to me. That first project was altering our traditional regalia to be more breastfeeding friendly because they're very long dresses. And I have two children. So with my first child, during our traditional doings, I wanted to participate, but it was hard because I was always having to remove myself physically from the space in order to breastfeed and then putting our traditional regalia back on is very time consuming. And I thought there had to be an easier way without cutting or, or tearing the dress in order to make it easier to breastfeed. So that was our first project. I wanted to make sure we took some time to go over those other great projects that the group is working on, in addition to all of their fantastic abortion work. Within the abortion access realm, one of the things I'm most curious about is what unique barriers Native people face in the United States when seeking abortion care. IHS, Indian Health Services, is a federally funded and run entity and a lot of Native people on and off the reservation depend on IHS for health care. And when we talk about the Hyde Amendment and access to abortion, and rightfully so, a lot of folks who are not Native are very concerned about access to abortion and you know, the possibility of Roe getting overturned. But to be quite honest, we've been living with that for for decades. And so a lot of these struggles are not new. And part of me is like, welcome to the club. That was, again, Rachel Lorenzo, one of the founders, describing the Hyde Amendment as a barrier to abortion. We talked about the Hyde Amendment in more depth in my first episode focused on Indiana. This, again, is an amendment that's passed each year as part of the budget that prohibits federal funding for abortion services. Since IHS is federally funded, this extends to reservations. So there are no abortion services offered through IHS, and this is where most Indigenous people get their health care. So all of the barriers we've talked about in the past, transportation, childcare, cost, all of these also still exist for Native persons and are exacerbated by the fact that there are no abortion services provided on the reservations themselves. Another thing that I wanted to better understand was whether there are any cultural barriers to abortion for Native peoples. But after talking with the leaders of this organization, I realized that this very question is flawed. 
each individual community has different cultural norms. And of the thousands of communities throughout the United States, each one is unique. And many non-Native people don't realize that even within a reservation, there can be multiple unique groups that identify with a different type of Indigenous culture. Here is Dr. Riley to explain more about this. I believe that the challenge in getting our message across is being able to work through various ideas about what culture is in an Indigenous community. I think there's one thing that fails to be talked about when we're talking about health issues or reproductive justice, you know, criminal justice, is that tribal communities in general are composed of of various groups. You know, you have your religious groups, meaning your Catholic, Baptist. You have your traditional groups that adhere to um, custom and traditional practices within the community. You have those that are just non-denominational. So, I think one of the difficulties in trying to promote cultural awareness, culturally appropriate practices, and cultural proficiency is that whenever we talk about culture in general, you know, the set of attitudes and beliefs and practices of, of individuals, that we're talking about a very diverse society. And when we talk about abortion or access to safe abortions, um, access to birth control, safe sex, body autonomy, you know, a lot of people have various views about what that is or different interpretations. And it really does take a lot of, of conversations, generational conversations within the community to really get people more informed about what this means and how it applies Not only does it impact patients what assumptions might be made about their culture, it can even harm them by leading to withholding of information. You know, one of the things that I find very startling is that there is a limited amount of outreach and awareness that goes out to tribal communities because of a misunderstanding about what culture and tradition is and disrupting that by promoting or giving information that we rightfully should have as as women and also as men. And, you know, the perception or misconception of culture and tradition and how that applies to indigenous cultures is something that I think we really need to to work on, but we also need to make sure that providers, even providers like yourself, understand that, you know, culture means different things to different groups of people depending on your upbringing or your exposure. And I, until we start really working towards that, becoming more aware of that diversity, even within our tribal communities, we're still going to have, you know, these underground conversations about access to abortion care. The truth is that all of us have multiple identities, whether that be our race, our gender, religion, our community. Each person, each individual has multiple identities, and providers ought to be in tune with that, ought to be looking at each individual as as an individual, a person with multiple identities. This is especially true for folks who are part of Native communities, whose various identities have been misunderstood, ignored, and forcibly erased for most of our country's history. So I think the takeaway is, 
ask lots of questions and don't make assumptions. Everyone has a right to information about their healthcare and a right to make their own decisions about their healthcare. The more we ask questions about people's identity and don't assume, the better off we're going to be and the more complete healthcare we can offer someone. One thing I wanted to make sure that I spoke with the leaders of Indigenous Women Rising about is the tragic history of forced sterilization of Indigenous people in this country. So this is something that IHS specifically took part in in the 70s, and it was estimated that 25% of Native women of childbearing age were sterilized by 1976. IHS committed this terrible practice, but it also existed before IHS was founded. IHS was founded in the 50s, and this practice had been going on for a long time before that. It had also included not just Native women, but women of color, immigrants, and disabled women. There's lots of stories for women going in for a routine procedure like an appendectomy and coming out with their tubes tied, never having signed anything or having signed something but not understanding what it was they were signing. So this is a terribly tragic history and staying on healthcare in the United States. I talked with the leaders about whether this history impacts trust in the medical system now. The response was that though there may be some distrust, the larger issue is the fact that this large government system that has committed these atrocities in the past is now the one resource for an entire group of people to get their health care, and people are dependent on it. There's also this larger issue of the fact that despite this history, people are just trying to survive on a day-to-day basis. The history of forced sterilization is terrible. It wasn't just Native women. It was Latina women or immigrant women in the Los Angeles County Hospital that were forcibly sterilized in the 70s. It was disabled women. It was sex workers. It was Black women. And we were being essentially tested on. So we weren't just being forcibly sterilized. We weren't just being threatened with the death of our children when they were born if we didn't do a C-section. But we also had birth control tests on us without our consent and the the most famous example is the Tuskegee experiment yeah the experiment about with black men and syphilis I mean while that is a very real history and I think to an extent there is some distrust as a community and as advocates we get into this habit of talking about like using these very fluffy terms to talk about social justice and reproductive justice without fully understanding that we need to bring what we're talking about what we're advocating for down and not dumbing it down that's not what I'm saying at all but bringing it down to a level that that our community members can understand. I use my cousins as a litmus test. I was asking one of my cousins about something a few years ago about about birth control. And she told me, what you're doing is really cool, but I'm just trying to put food on the table and help my mom pay the bills. Like I mentioned that forced sterilization is a really important part of our history. But over the decades since the 70s, Native communities, we may have become very reliant on Indian Health Services, and that's a $6 billion underfunded entity um, that has been chronically underfunded for decades. The last thing I asked the leadership of Indigenous Women Rising was what they think we can do to increase abortion access for the Indigenous community and across the country. 
Both Dr. Riley and Rachel suggested that one place to start would be increasing female leadership within Indigenous communities. Because tribes are, are sovereign, but yet we have a very predominant male leadership, it's very hard for women, Native women, to really get out and express themselves and express concerns or advocate for good policy or for you know, tribal leadership to develop resolutions to get IHS to be able to talk openly about abortion as an option, as an alternative to, to, you know, going through with the pregnancy or talking about Plan B or even the thought of having a tubal ligation. We've had various conversations, and I always think about this as an underground group that we have, is because a lot of men who control the conversations in tribal communities often stifle the female voice in such a way that we we are fighting for autonomy over our bodies and you know just trying to educate men and women about you know what their options are when it comes to reproductive health we have 23 federally recognized tribes in New Mexico, and none of them, none of them have women in leadership as governors or presidents. There is one Pueblo, and I forget which one, they have a woman as a, as their like vice chair or, or something. But one of my own grandmothers had to fight to become the tribal secretary, Emily Hunt. And I mean, that just goes to show that over the centuries, and again, not to paint native communities with a broad brush, but I, I know that tribes have across North America, South America had, a, had more of a, of a feminine pres presence in governance. And we've moved away from that so much that it's impacting our healthcare with these 638 contracts, tribal governments do have some say in what kind of healthcare is provided to their communities. And if reproductive healthcare is not part of that, it's because there's a lack of representation in our own governments. Briefly, Rachel mentioned something called a 638 contract. I had to have this explained to me multiple times by Dr. Riley and the other leaders because I found it to be very confusing. But basically, the idea is that through a contract with the federal government, a tribe can receive money that IHS would have used, and they can use that money to provide direct health services for tribal members. So it's a way for a tribe to gain some control over the way that healthcare is delivered. In addition to increasing female leadership, the other response I got was that we need to let minority voices lead. If folks want to get involved, please research what is already there and figure out how you can dedicate your time or resources to, to the orgs or to the grassroots efforts that are already experts in, in helping and let us lead. Because I think in the feminist movement in general, we have been told, you know, this is how it's done when it's not serving the people it should be serving. I mean, the terminology abortion on demand without apology, like that doesn't ring true for me. And I know it doesn't ring true for the communities that we grew up in because we don't, that's not language that we use. It's that simplifies abortion when we're not taking into consideration a person's 
personality and experience and background and why they don't have access to abortion care. So that would be my piece of advice. That's a really important takeaway for any non-Native person. If you want to help increase access for Native communities, the best thing you can do is offer your resources and talents to the organizations that are already out there, like Indigenous Women Rising. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Indigenous Women Rising's abortion fund, and you can donate there. And also check out what's available in your community. There are lots of local organizations that help raise up the voices of Indigenous communities. And if you happen to live in a state where there is a large presence of Indigenous communities, you may have a local organization near you. That about wraps it up for this episode. Thank you so, so much to the leaders of Indigenous Women Rising, Dr. Melissa Riley, Executive Director, Rachel Lorenzo, Nicole Martin. Thank you so much for the great work that you're doing helping Indigenous communities gain access to abortion. I'll leave you now with thoughts from Rachel and Nicole about why they do the work that they do. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next episode. They're guided by our, our traditions. I mean, we get, we get it hammered into our head during ceremonies like love each other and respect each other. And this is our way of showing love and respect to people by letting folks know that they do have a choice when it comes to their bodies. Hell yeah, and download the patriarchy. Yes! <laughs> yes! I love it! <laughs> Music in this episode is by David Hyde, and you can find his information in the show notes. For updates about the podcast, you can follow me on Instagram at For the Love of Row Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.